Remember now that on Sunday, uh, Rick Moore will be in here for a couple of classes, and Rick Watling a couple of classes, Rick Moore again with a couple of classes, and then Rick Watling with a couple more classes, periods, class periods, and then I'll be back in for the, most of the rest of it, maybe not quite. And then uh, Sunday I'll be uh, the first three chapters of Ezra out in the auditorium. So make sure you keep putting all this, all your uh, paperwork in your folders. You're going to have a nice little folder when this is all done. And we were talking before, just uh, Cheryl and I a couple minutes ago, that um, she said she spent three hours on it today, just this little bit. You can do that. Yeah. You really can. Now we're going, and our charge is to get through this in 40 minutes, so it's a little bit difficult, but. Um, it, this is just to kind of whet our appetite for, for these kinds of things. Um, boy, oh boy, the, remember when we were in school, we had, uh, you go to the library and the Dewey Decimal System and you would go and find the books at the internet. Uh, you got to be careful, I understand that. Um, but we have a tremendous amount of material at our fingertips. If, if, and it's a blessing if you use it right. It's a curse if you don't, but uh, we all know that. But um, So you have your new handout that we made. I did that today. Just uh, I just couldn't put, just couldn't stop. And we'll get to that in a little bit when we start talking about the Septuagint. Uh, uh, Acts 1 and verse 8 says this. Talking to the apostles, Jesus himself. <clears throat> but you shall receive power upon when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the world. How would you tie that into translations? Because up to this point, before at least about 275 BC, before that point, what was everything written in? Hebrew, Aramaic. And then, uh, well, I won't get too far ahead on the Septuagint, but around 275, 280, wouldn't argue over the date, but um, the first um, Hebrew translations uh, went into Greek. Because at that time, guess what people in the world spoke? Mainly Greek. Um, so Jesus says that you're going to go into all the world. I, I saw translations, uh, Different translations as late as 500 A.D. were already in India. Um, did I see China? I don't remember about China, but it basically it covered the whole world, and there were translations into their common language in that particular. Germany in the 200, uh, late 200, maybe early three, 300s, uh, Germany had already translated um, the, the Greek into German. Um, so there was this big movement on because people didn't speak Greek too much. And um, so it needed to be translated into the native language. Most of us don't speak Greek. I sound like I speak Greek sometimes. <laughs> well, he don't know what he's saying. But, um, so tell me some... Can you take a, a literal, well you can, it's not like a matter of whether you can or you can't, but can you take a, 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 a Hebrew word or a Greek word 
and literally put that into the English language and be relatively easy to read or understand. No, you can't. You really can't. So the, the work of the translators were to, first of all, honor the original, but to, to take each individual word and, and make it applicable to that word in the language, the target language, if you will. So, and that was the challenge. Now, Don was telling me a little bit earlier about, tell me about the scribes, Don, about the, uh, what it took to be a scribe and to be a translator. The reason why you call a scribe a lawyer is because they spent a great deal of schooling studying the law and the prophets so that by the time they came around to being a copyist and actually making a copy of the scriptures, they knew it well enough to differentiate any any smears or smudges that might be there. In other words, if there's a question about a letter, their knowledge of the law was sufficient so that they would know what the correct letter should be. So they were almost to the point where they could copy it from memory, but they still used a authorized, verified copy to make their copy, and then you had a second scribe that would verify that copy that it was accurate. So, what if they found yes, a but lawyer more more specifically? What if they found a mistake that second scribe or the third scribe who checked the second scribe? Everything got tore up, and you started over. Started from over. This was not a game. They they tore it right. Who pays us? Well, that's a real good question. The question question was. Who, I mean, because this took years. How did they live? Who paid them? Good question. Well, I, I know that, and I don't want to get too far ahead, but I, I can speak a little bit to the, uh, have you seen, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, but I'm coming back, Brad. <laughs> have you seen this in your, uh, maybe your center column reference or the bottom of your Bible, LXX? You know what that means? That's the that's a Latin the Latin word set. It's almost a transliterated type of word. Septuaginta. I think it's got an A on it. If I remember right. And in Latin, that's seventy. That's the number seventy. So there were seventy different scholars scribes, lawyers, who for years and years took the Old Testament in the Hebrew and translated it into Greek so that because we were a Greek-speaking world. And it was under the the, the uh, king of Egypt, his name was Ptolemy Ptolemy Philadelphus. Philadelphia, Philadelphia's. And while I did not actually read this, I can tell you that in this case, I'll bet you, or I'll, I don't bet, I mean, I'll check <laughs> that. Uh, that's great. You're on tape. I'm on tape. <laughs> All right, you can, you can edit that out. I, I'll be willing to, and I'll, I will follow up on it, <clears throat> how they were paid. But I, there's no doubt to me 
because it was in Alexandria, Egypt. Now, what, where was the world's largest library in around 275 B.C.? Alexandria, Egypt. It was the most complete, the biggest, the best on the planet. Now, who was it named after? Alexander the Great. Greek, all that, all that kind of stuff. And I have no doubt that they were paid for years, these 70 scholars, we'll call them scholars in our language maybe, to, to uh, translate that, the old Hebrew and Old Testament, into Greek. But it's a good point. I never thought about that actually, but I think it's a valid point. Don, you may not. When, when the copies were ordered, it was a very rich individual. And when yeah. you look at, at uh, Joseph of Arimathea, that type of an individual would have the money to order the scribes to make him a copy. He might have to wait 10 years for it. But he took care of them during the time period that they were writing his copy. No, that's true. And that's why the invention of the printing press in, what, 1450, if I remember right, was so critical. Because this hand copying that took years and had to be checked and double-checked and triple-checked. Oh, you made a mistake, Cheryl. Well, let's tear it up. We'll start that over process again for six, for 39 books. So it took a while. Um, it was quite a process. When you read about that, I encourage you to do that with all of these. People losing their lives, people being burned at the stake for translating the Bible. Now, why would they do that if they didn't think it was legit? They, the answer is they wouldn't. You would not. So I'm, I'm almost certain that the king of Egypt during the 270, uh, he reigned, I think, for about 47 or 50 years. Uh, but somewhere in that mid uh, uh, third century was when, uh, when when the Septuagint was done. Um, but a good question. What's the difference between a paraphrase and a uh, translation? I guess theoretically they're both translations. I'll, I'll give it that. But what's the difference between a paraphrase and a the question is almost going to tell you the answer about the word-for-word -word translation. Paraphrase is what I would tell you. The other is what Carol would tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Could be. Could be. The, the idea of a paraphrase is it gives you a general idea of what is being said um, versus a translation, a word-for-word, -word, a word-for-word -word study so that, because first of all, whose word is this? This is not your Reader's Digest. Uh, and I, I mentioned that last, I think I mentioned it Sunday. They were so serious that that before they would even write the word Yahweh or God or Elohim or that kind of thing, they would, they would uh, wipe the tip of their pen so that the, his name was not smudged. Now that's the respect they had for this back then. Now we don't have in our society, you know, the 90% or 90, whatever the percentage would be, but uh, the Christians do. We respect this. Why, why, why do we do that? For some of the reasons. Sacred. What's one of the well? It is. 
what is one of the maybe the biggest reason why we should understand this and respect this and make sure that we're getting the real deal here and not some Reader's Digest version? Your eternity counts on it. We're going to be judged by it. The Lord said, my, my word will judge you in the last day. So we better make sure we got this right. And he said, my word is truth. Yeah. And it's we, we can take that to the bank. It's we don't really get a redo. And we get a redo in almost lots of I used to play a lot of golf, and now I don't, I don't even play, but uh, you, know, you say, well, I, I'm going to do a do-over. A mulligan. I'm going to redo this. Can I get another one? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, but there are no redos with your life and your spiritual life. Um, because we're, we're going to be, my word is truth, John 17. My word will judge you in the last day. So that's why it's serious business. But it's interesting, so interesting to get to dig into this, Mike. Just quickly, Jesus said not one jot or tittle will pass away. He's got the the word is the word. He says my word is truth. There's nothing going to pass away until the end, and then it's going to be revealed all. And so, yep, I, I'm a firm believer that. Christ said what he said and he did what he was going to do. That's true. The translators, they took every word as, as if it was literal unless the context just made that impossible. Um, notice at the bottom of page two there. Translate expressions literally when the wording and structure of the target text allow for such renderings in the original text. Now, so, so what does that mean in our language? How are we to take this Bible? Do we take it literally? We do, unless what? The context doesn't allow it. But other than that, it's, it's taken literally. <laughs> then you get over into you know, Ezekiel and, and you get into the book of Revelation and all that. I mean, obviously that can't be literal. But it represents. But what, but in, in Revelation chapter one, what did John say? That first of all, this is going to take place shortly. People say, well, you know, when Hitler came into power, that was the book of Revelation coming. No. It says this is going to take place shortly, and it's going to be signified or by symbols. So he even said, now you're going to have to. Christians would understand it. It was actually to hide it from the authorities basically, so that they couldn't understand. So you didn't take that literally. But it had literal ramifications, if you will, if you follow me on that. But you have to know the other scriptures to know where it, where it fits in. You do. Now, you know, there's there's a couple of us in this room that know Spanish real well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, maybe there's one. Um, <laughs> when you say... That's an inside joke on my Spanish abilities. Uh, Daisy, how do you? Uh, how would you say uh, I live in a white house? Yo vivo en una casa blanca. Okay, now well, in Blanca white. Uh, we say white house. How do you say it? Housewife. So you, you, that's just a very primitive example of my little brain power. But even in Spanish. They're not, the words are not in the same sequence as we say them. Now, 
they could translate that just like that. Daisy lives in a house of white. Well, I guess we could figure that out. Or the translator could say what? White Daisy lives in a white house. You, you see that. <coughs> or so, they could say she lives in the white house. You could. <laughs> you could. That would be wrong, obviously. Um, so, when the translator had to use it in language, in the target language, in the sequence and grammar and grammatical punctuation uh, that we can understand. And does that violate the original? It does not. If she says, we, I live in a house of white, and I say, I live in a white house, same thing. Same thing. But uh, Mexican people could understand that better than, than, than we could, than I could. So you see that idea. All right, so that's, that was some of the challenges you know, you take that to German, or you take that to all kinds of punctuation and and that, that kind of thing. So they had to honor this, yes, while at the same time translating it in, a, in an understandable language for the common people. Does that make sense to you a little bit? Okay. Now, paraphrase, I have no trouble a study of paraphrase. But if you know the original, and uh, I'll do that sometimes. The, the problem with a paraphrase is you can your biases can color that paraphrase when you don't take it word for word, the idea. You see that? And that happens all the time. That's why paraphrases are a little bit dangerous, but I like to study sometimes after I've done my regular study in a paraphrase. But just know there's a certain amount of danger in that. Okay, good, good, good point. Um, we talked about, um, you know, the first English version, the first Greek to English complete version was in 1535 by Miles Coverdale. Now, what was what happened not too long after 1535? What next version? King James. What year was that? Do you remember? 1611. So, what would it be? Uh, 70 or 75 years. The King James, uh, it, it was the, the King of England said, I, I want this done. And he had a whole bank of, I want to say 130. I think that's right. 130. Uh, scribes slash lawyers slash translators that religiously word for word took the King James Version over a period of several years and came up with King James, which some still use. In fact, 55% of all Americans today in the latest, latest survey, I've got your notes there, uh, use the King James Version. So the new King James Version comes along and they, what does the New King James Version have at their disposal that the King James Version did not have? Got to put your thinking cap on here a second. We talked about this on Sunday. Something happened in 1948. Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, 790 pages. 
that had every book in, 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 the, in the cave of Qumran, 1948. And it had been there for uh, 1,800 years or so. Give me a, take, give me a few there. And, and it was still intact. Every book in the, New, in the Old Testament, every book in the New Testament, every book but Esther, and every book in the New Testament was in that, and it was verified to be 1,800 years old. Why Esther? Or something in the neighborhood. I may be off 10 years. So. so the new King James Version takes that additional information and drops out the these and the thines and the thous and the believest, believest thou, you know, all of that, and put in like we talk. Why not Esther? Don't know. I don't know that question or that no, uh, that answer. God is not in the book of Esther. The word is not, is it? The word is not. The, input, the providence of God is yeah. there, but the name of God is not there. That's an interesting point too. God is behind all of that, the book of Esther, but His His name is never used one time. That's interesting. And yet, when they find the Dead Sea Scrolls, every book but Esther, which His name's not in, is not found. Or is found. Interesting. Interesting thoughts. Now, I've not put those two together till, till right now. We're going to have to have well, I'll sit there. You can teach it now because you, you can do a better job. But uh, <clears throat> interesting, interesting stuff. Questions or comments? The genius of the writing the New Testament in Greek is like you were saying there is you were talking about sentence structure between like your example of the English sentence structure and the Spanish sentence structure right. Greek does not have sentence structure therefore it's open and easy to translate into all the other sentence structures of all the different languages in the world great point how that happened accidentally? <laughs> oh, that's right, it was an accident. The providence of God. The Alexander who, who conquered the world at age 30 and died about age 32. His father was Philip of Macedon, the city of Philippi, named after Alexander the Great father, Philip of Macedon. So uh, an amazing, amazing history. Um, and you can see God's hand behind it. Now, when we go into uh, Ezra on Sunday morning, I'm going to give you just a little bit of a <clears throat> peek. 200 years before Ezra, uh, before um, Osiris, the king of Persia, was born. 200 years before he was born, in a verified book, and we'll go over all that on Sunday, God said, I'm going to raise up a man by the name of Cyrus whose great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents and parents had not been born yet. And the book is verified to that date. You go to Ezra, verified at this date. Now how does anyone, the answer is nobody can, forecast, prophesy, a king is coming to get my people back from Babylonian captivity 200 years before he's born 
and call him by his name. <laughs> Cannot be done. Cannot. Without the master mind behind it all. Now, okay, you don't have to come to the class on Sunday. Now, I gave some of that away, but I've been on that this week. Boy, that is, that is wonderful stuff. Wonderful you're gonna, stuff. You're going to start with Isaiah 44 and 45, right? No. Yeah. That's where Cyrus is named. I know, I understand. We'll be there. Um, go to page six, and the last five or seven minutes, I want to go on the reliability of the Bible on the Septuagint. <clears throat> Someone uh, read, we'll see where it says introduction on page six. Someone with a strong voice, read the first paragraph, then I want somebody else to read the second paragraph, and then listen really closely. Dangers of paraphrases and doctrinal bias uh, in translation. Please, someone can start. First paragraph? Yep. Introduction. Extremes in rewarding the text must be avoided. The translator who liberally paraphrases the Bible according to how he interprets the overall idea, idea could distort the meaning of the text. How? The translator may erroneously insert his opinion of what the original text means or may omit important details contained in the original text. So, while paraphrases of the Bible may be easy to read, their freeness at times may prevent the reader from getting the true message of the text. That's, that's the main difference. Jerry, you're doing a good job. Do that second one. <laughs> a Bible translator must also consider that the Bible was written using the common, everyday language of average people, such as farmers, fishermen, and shepherds. See Nehemiah 8, 8, 12, and Acts 4, 13. Therefore, a good translation of the Bible makes the message it contains understandable to sincere people, regardless of background. Clear, common, readily understood expressions are preferred over terms that are rarely used by the average person. Could God have said, now look, I want this written on a PhD level because I understand it. Uh, God saying that. Could He have said that? Yeah. He sure. could have. Could He have said, if you don't have a PhD, I don't want you to write anything. He could have. He did not, because generally, can you can you can, if, if if it was a PhD kind of thing and only PhDs understood it, can you see where the the glory would have gone? You know, I got a PhD here. I get it. Oh, that's right. You know, all oh, too bad. God said, I, "It's glory's mine. I want it written so the average person can understand it, because most of the Highly, not all, but all, most of the highly educated and people with big money and all of that think they don't need this. And they'll tell you that. Just the way it is. Now, let's, let's go to the Don. We all can, we can make the same statement about some of the word-for-word -word translations that we use. And I know nobody reads my blogs. But the one that I did on the I am. How do you know that? Well, I asked questions. Oh, okay. <laughs> the one that I did on the I, I am know. and the ego emei, uh, the difference being <coughs> between the, the King James and some of the others, the new King James adds the word emei 
to uh, John chapter 8 and verse 21, which is not there. Which changes the meaning and context of, of the statement there. And the, the difference between here is the heavenly being saying, I'm, I'm going my way. I'm doing things my way. As opposed to, I am going away. And it's subtle. It's, it's unnoticeable unless you take different translations and you start noticing these things. Well, why does this one add that? Why does this not add that? And if our checks now, if we compare translations, we get a hint as to where somebody has put in their opinion or left something out. Does that make sense? It does. It does. The Septuagint is the oldest known Old Testament manuscript in existence. The Septuagint. That's where those 70 I was telling you about, the word LXX means 70 in, in Latin. Um, when this was translated from Hebrew into Greek, a lot of the Jews spoke Greek because they'd been conquered and deported to foreign countries. The world was conquered by the Greeks, so what are you going to understand? You're going to understand Greek. And they wanted to be able to, because a lot of the Jews couldn't speak Hebrew anymore. So they said, we're going to commission this Ptolemy in Egypt, King Philadelphia, to these 70 men, some say 72, wouldn't argue about it, um, uh, to translate it into, into Greek. It was not until 1808 when a man by the name of Thompson um, translated the Septuagint into English. Now, those of you that know your... Uh, Restoration history. Is that a relatively key date in the United States? Yes. Yeah, that's what. Yes. Is that the answer you're looking for? <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, in, in 1807, in Salina, Tennessee, where all my, my mother's folks are from, Church still stands, the oldest continuously running Church of Christ in the United States. It was established in 1807. Still there. Been there many times. All of my folks are buried there on my mother's side. This is we, things were starting to get revived again in the United States. Uh, the restoration. The, remember the Reformation where Luther and those guys were reforming. They saw the Catholic Church for what it, what it was, and they were reforming it, but they didn't take it all the way back to restore it to New Testament Christianity. So it's interesting that, oh, just about that time, um, I've got his name here. I want to, so Charles Thompson, maybe a uh, family member of Stan's way back. Charles Thompson, about that time, <clears throat> over a period of a, of a few years, decided to translate that into English. And then we know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey says. The, the Restoration Movement just caught on fire. Uh, particularly in the South. And then it just spread. I, I just found that interesting. Um, the, the Jews, the Hebrews, 
between about 300 years before Jesus came, might have been 280, we'll call it 300, said that the, that the uh, Septuagint was the Word of God. And they taught it. Then Jesus comes. And how did the Jews, generally speaking, get along with Jesus? Not too well. They decided that the Septuagint was no longer for them at the, by the end of the first century. And they changed it. And guess what they changed for the most part? Things dealing with Jesus. You know, the Old Testament said there's a Savior coming. He came. The Jews uh, believed all of that until He actually came. Then they said, well, He's still coming out there some way, some day. Did Jesus quote from the Septuagint? He certainly did. <coughs> Jesus quoted from the Septuagint. The, the apostles quoted from the Septuagint. It was the Word of God in Greek. Yes, He did. He certainly did. That's a pretty good... It endorsement. is. It's a pretty good endorsement. <laughs> God said in Zechariah, I think it's 12, that at the time that He opens the fountain for the cleansing of sin through the house of David, or for Israel, that two-thirds of His people will be cut off. And one-third He will try then and refine as gold. And he's actually predicting how many of the Jews at the time, or he's not predicting, he's telling us, one-third of the nation will become Christian. Two-thirds will be cut off in, in the same way that it talks about the branches cut off. Yeah, I don't think it's literal. It's not a literal mm -hmm. two-thirds, one-third. It, it's, it's kind of like the book of Revelation that stands for something else. Uh, at, least, at least I'm pretty sure that that's what that means. That portion uh, is, is apocalyptic. Right, it's apocalyptic for that's sure. It's not, it's not literal. Uh, it's interesting that 98% of the Dead Sea Scrolls, 98% that we found in 1948, just happened to find, agrees with the oldest manuscripts gold. 98%. How's that possible? Oh, there's, there's a mastermind behind it all. And you know what the 2% was? Uh, there, there were misspellings. There, run-on sentences, that kind of thing. There, there was nothing major, what we would call major, that did not agree with, with things that were over 2,000 years old. Interesting. Very interesting. Now, there's a thing called, you may see this, see if there's anything else before we go, um, a thing called the Amplified Bible. Interesting. You, you may... Where's the... Uh, it's on the back of what you did today. Oh. On the back? Yes. Does she need one? Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. I got it. I got it right here. Because I want, I want to touch on this real quickly. Um, I'll let you read the Amplified... <coughs> about the Amplified Bible. just found that kind of interesting. Uh, there was a survey done in 2014 by Indiana University uh, in conjunction with Purdue University it was called The Study of Religion and American Culture. I won't read, all, I'll read a couple of them. 55% of the people surveyed used the King James Version. 19% the NIV, da, 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 all of that. So you, you can do that on your own. 
Translation to interesting facts. You see that? Interesting facts. I want, there's some things that, that are very interesting here to me. It's on the other side. <laughs> that doesn't confuse you. Put it on the back. It says two methods of translation. If you want to call it two philosophies of translation, I wouldn't argue with that. There's one called formal equivalence. And it's a literal translation with translation with the greatest effort is made to preserve the meaning of individual words and phrases in the original. There's one called dynamic. Now when you think of dynamic, what do you think of? Is that something static or, or moving? Evolving. It's evolving, dynamic. Okay, well that tells you what's going to go on here. Dynamic equivalence. Also known as a paraphrasistic? Paraphrasic. <laughs> I think it's actually paraphrastic, I believe it would be the way you pronounce that. Translation. The translator attempts to render the sense and the intent of the original as if they understand what the sense and the, and the uh, uh, intent is without going through the individual word. There's your two, that's the dichotomies. That's why you've got to be careful with paraphrases. It's also interesting that in 1560, the Geneva Bible came into existence. It was the first one that included verses, the Bible being divided into verses. Um, modern English translations use a wider variety of manuscripts, which allows for more cross-checking. That's where that, that the Dead Sea Scrolls come into play. The Septuagint, the Masoretic Text, in addition to the most recent Dead Sea Scrolls. The English Standard Version. Now, Gary said this didn't sound right, but this is what I was able to discover on uh, research. But I, if this is wrong, then I, I'll yield to what Gary said. Uh, but what I found was the English Standard Version, well, the first version, was in 1971. Now, in 1948, Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, he was saying it was back in the 1800s. Well, in the 1800s, they didn't have access to the Dead Sea Scroll. That's why I don't think that's... So, this is the New Testament came out. The New Testament, okay. The entire Bible did not come out until much later. Okay. It's just like the the uh, New King James, you know. It, no, no, it came out in the 70s, but the whole thing didn't come out in the 80s. Right. The English Standard Version, which I don't own one, but I'm going to give one. It's based on the Revised Standard Version, which is based on a literal translation. It, it, it's, it's a good one. And they found approximately 500 words that they focused on where they could use correct grammar, more consistency with greater precision and meaning. Other than that, it's a revised standard version with about 500 minor modifications. I found that interesting. Uh, King James Version, you can read all of that. Well, I guess we've got to get to the second bell. Yeah. Okay. You, you, I, I can stay another two hours if you want to. <laughs> but thank you for your input.